while you're in a celebratory mood, I want to get you to celebrate something with me that only can be celebrated appropriately with a hoop and a holler. It's this thing that we celebrate every single Easter Sunday, and really we celebrate it every Sunday because we gather for worship on Sunday, which is the Lord's Day, which is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So in that sense, every Sunday is a celebration of his resurrection, but particularly on Easter, we celebrate this truth, but I want you to celebrate it with me. Here it is. Are you ready? It is this fundamental and eternal truth, Jesus Christ is alive. Amen? Amen. Amen. And I'm so glad to be able to say that to you today. I say it with absolute assurance and confidence. And I'm especially glad today to be able to say it face to face with you. I'm really happy to be able to look you in the eye and say to you that Jesus is alive. Because I said those words last Easter, but last Easter I only could speak those words to a camera. Do you remember last Easter? You weren't here last Easter. This was a lonely room last Easter Sunday morning. And I could only look into a camera. Now, I had confidence. I knew that you were watching. I knew that you were on the other side of the camera. But I could only say it to a camera, Jesus is alive. And since that time a year ago, in the last year that has passed, we know that we have been living in a world where there has been an awful lot of bad news. In fact, when we celebrate this good news that Jesus is alive, we do so recognizing that it is very, very, very good news in a world which has been filled for the last year with very bad news. It really is true. It was barely more than a year ago, just before Easter, just a few weeks before Easter 2020, that then-President Donald Trump issued a declaration of national emergency. The date was March the 13th of 2020. President Trump uh, issued a declaration of national emergency, which put into place all sorts of policies and restrictions, as you know, that have changed the world in which we live. In fact, you would agree with me that the last 388 days have brought radical changes to our nation, radical changes to our lives, and many changes that, in fact, I believe were unimaginable. We couldn't have even considered that some of the things that we've endured would have happened. I don't even really need to repeat the numbers to you, but let me just remind you that in the last year, over three million people in the world have died of COVID-19, three million people. 600,000 of those in the United States, 600,000 of our fellow citizens have passed away from coronavirus. As a part of that, we as Americans have endured unprecedented restrictions on almost every one of our personal liberties. We have begun to live with a new vocabulary. A year ago, we wouldn't have known what socially distanced meant. But that's a new phrase that we now understand. Everyone in our nation has been required in various degrees in various places and times to mask up. Now, I'm not espousing an opinion about either one of those things. I'm just telling you it's the fact that we live in a world where now masks are the reality, social distancing is the reality, and this virus has become a reality. Now, the effects of all of this is, uh, are, are not surprising, and they're, they're obvious, in fact. 
that is that we've experienced an economic downturn, businesses too many to number have closed. Maybe you lost your business over the last year due to coronavirus restrictions. Most of those businesses will never return. Churches, countless churches, have not been able to get restarted uh, throughout this last year. Many of them have closed their doors. There's been a social kind of impact. Um, Simply put, we have become so isolated, and for a number of reasons, not the least of which is when, when every store or business that you walk into, when every place that you go, every person is masked, it has a dehumanizing effect. And so what happens is we, and again, I'm not talking about the efficacy of the masks. That's, that's not my point, uh, whether you're for or against masks. What I'm saying is that when everyone wears them, it tends to cause us to become dehumanized, faceless beings. And so we isolate from one another even more. I'm convinced that there's been no other time in my lifetime when the United States has been as divided as it is now. We've become angry about things that we haven't been angry about in a long, long time. And suddenly we're angry and divided over so many things. There's been an emotional impact. Schools closing and students not being able to gather with their peers. And that's created so much of a social difficulty. And all of this combined has really created a mental health crisis. There is, without question, a mental health crisis that's occurring in our nation, listen to this statistic. It's mind-blowing. 37% of American adults say that they now, today, are experiencing significant symptoms of depression and anxiety. 37%. The suicide rate has increased among students and adults. And all of these things combined, and many, many more, of course, but all of these issues combined, if we could chart them, if there were a graph, what you would see over the last year is that we have had a steep curve to the upside in this overall sense of hopelessness and fear that just is brooding over our nation. So many people feel stuck. So many people feel stuck in despair. And maybe you do. I, I don't know. You know, maybe you would say right now, you know, Pastor, you're really kind of describing my life. I mean, you, the things that you're saying are true of me. That there is this, this struggle going on in my mind and in my heart and the absence of peace and this despair. Now, I do need to tell you that there is a silver lining to all of this. And you may be thinking, well, I'm glad because I didn't really come to church on Easter to hear all this bad news. So there is, there is a silver lining. And the silver lining is that for the first time in my lifetime, and as a result of all of these uh, issues that we're dealing with, more people than ever are looking to God for the answers. That's good news. Because people are discovering, you know what, the, the Washington doesn't have the answer, and the governor doesn't have the answer, and, and my community doesn't have the answer, and they're beginning to look to God to find the answers. In fact, one recent survey revealed that 44% of Americans believe that coronavirus is a wake-up call from God, that God is using the coronavirus to get our attention, to shake our world, to shake our nation, our communities, and even our homes, our families, and our lives, that God is trying to wake us up because he has something to say to us. Another report showed that one-third of Americans believe that we're living in the days that the Bible calls the last days. 
And by the way, I should say to you, I'm one of the people who believe that. I do believe that we are living in the days that the Bible calls the last days. And because of that, because people are open to seeking the answers in God and in Christ and and seeking them in the scriptures, more people than ever before are open to having a spiritual conversation. They're open to considering the possibility that perhaps God can resolve the issues of fear and depression and discouragement and anxiety that are hanging on to my life. And I just want to say to you, if you've come to Easter service today and you would say, these things describe me, there is a despair, there's an anxiety, there's a depression that's hanging on to my life because of all of these issues. I'm, I'm a bit afraid and I can't seem to shake it. I just want to welcome you to church and tell you that you've come to the right place. And I've got good news for you today. In fact, it's really not just good news, it's great news. Because here's the truth, when we come to a place where we look at all of the issues in our life and our world and we start looking to God for the answers, what we discover is that the big issues in life, the the issues that we really need to wrestle with, the bigger questions really are not these earthly things at all. I mean, our biggest issue is not economic, right? Our biggest issue is not the virus. Our biggest issue is not not, uh, mental health issues or social issues. Our biggest issue is our own sin and our need to be forgiven by God. Our our greatest issues are the need to have a right standing and a right relationship with God. They're not earthbound issues. They're issues of eternity and, and life and death and heaven and hell. And it's in that greater consideration of those eternal things That God is able, if we'll let him, God is able to radically transform our lives. And that word's important. That word transform. It's an important word because God can transform our lives. And in fact, we're going to spend a few weeks here at Brookstone talking about the power of transformation. Now, if you're a guest at Brookstone, let me invite you to come back because we're going to spend the next few weeks digging into the scriptures about how this risen Christ that we've been celebrating today, how this living Lord Jesus can radically change our lives, how he does it, and what that transformation means for us in real terms, everyday living, how he changes my life now, how he changes my family now, how he reorients my priorities now, how he sets my values now, how that he changes my life now, and how he changes my life in eternity so that I don't have to fear eternal death, but that I can live for him. And if you'll come back in the coming weeks, then in order to help you see that this is a reality, this is not just theory, but it's a reality that true Uh, that real lives are being changed. We're going to show you a testimony every single week. We're going to tell you a story because we think stories are powerful. And we're going to tell you the story of somebody in our church. We'll show you a testimony video of a person in Brookstone whose life has been radically changed by this risen Christ and how their lives are different because of knowing Jesus. So come back and be a part of these teachings. Now today we're going to begin by talking about the transformation of a person who has never been to Brookstone Church. His name is Peter, and you're going to find him in John chapter number 21. And I want you to follow along in just a moment as I begin reading about this man, the Apostle Peter. Uh, Let me introduce you to Peter before we uh, read the passage. 
I'll tell you that Peter was a Jewish man who lived in Israel, in the Galilee region of Israel, um, in the time of Jesus Christ, who lived in the northern part of the country, in a tiny little village called Bethsaida. That was his home. He lived there in the first century, during the same time that Jesus lived. Now, Peter could have been a little bit older than Jesus. He might have been a little bit younger than Jesus. We don't really know for sure. Here's what we do know. He was a contemporary of Jesus. We also know that Peter was a fisherman. He was a commercial fisherman. That's what he did uh, for a living. And he was good. He was successful as a fisherman. He had boats and he had nets and he had gear and people that worked with him. And, and he was a good fisherman. Had a beautiful wife. All of that to say, for Peter, life was good. It was, it was going along fine. And one day, Peter is introduced to Jesus Christ. Now, when Peter meets Jesus, not a lot of other people have met Jesus in terms of his coming into his public ministry. Of course, people were around Jesus when he was growing up, but when Peter met him, he was just beginning his earthly ministry. So not a lot of people knew who he was. And Peter was introduced to Jesus by his brother. In fact, let me read it to you. You don't have to turn. I'll do it. John chapter 1 tells us about how Peter met Jesus. Listen to John chapter 1 verse 40. It says, one of the two which heard John the Baptist speaking and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon Peter, and said unto him, we have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Now, I love this. I think this is a beautiful picture, and it's a good model for us. Peter's brother, Andrew, introduced him to Christ. Now, maybe your brother brought you to church today. I don't know. Maybe, maybe a family member invited you to come to church today. They're following this model of John chapter number one. Andrew brings his brother Peter to Jesus. And there's really no doubt that Peter would have been impressed with Jesus. We, we know that. But we also know that Peter's life didn't change automatically, immediately. He went back to fishing and, and he goes back to the boat and his commercial business. Until one day, and Matthew records this, Matthew 4 records this, that Jesus came walking along the shore of Galilee where Peter and Andrew and James and John and some others are working. He comes walking along the shore where they're on their boats and mending their nets and doing their thing. And Jesus, whom they've already met, comes walking by and says this to them. You ready? Listen to this. Jesus says to Peter and Andrew, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Is that a great way to invite a fisherman to join your cults, to come and be your disciple? He says, follow me and you can be, you can no longer fish for stinky scaly fish. You can fish for men and women. You'll fish for the kingdom of God. What an invitation. And they did. Peter and Andrew became disciples of Jesus. And Peter, as is the way that he was, a successful fisherman, now becomes a successful disciple. This is who Peter was. He's, whatever he's doing, he's going to be in the front of it. And so he becomes this disciple of Jesus who really is one of the lead disciples and the most outspoken disciples. And Peter had a front row seat to everything that Jesus said and taught and did. And Peter was transformed by the teaching and the wisdom and the compassion of Jesus. 
And he saw the miracles. Imagine this. Peter saw Jesus take a dead boy in the village of Nain and pick him up and say, rise. And that boy came to life. Peter saw that. Peter saw when, when Jesus took one little boy's lunch, a few pieces of bread and a few little sardine fish, and turned those, that small lunch into enough food to feed thousands of people. Peter saw that. Peter watched Jesus heal people. Peter's own mother-in-law was healed by Peter, or by Jesus. And Peter saw Jesus walk on the water. In fact, not only did he see Jesus walk on the water, Peter even took a few steps on the water himself, trusting in Jesus. My point is that Peter saw Jesus do amazing things, and he became this articulate defender and proclaimer of the identity of Jesus. It was Peter who was the first disciple to articulate the words that Jesus was the Son of God. In fact, it's recorded this way in Matthew 16 and verse 16. It says that Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Are you tracking with me? Here's what I want you to know. Peter was a success in fishing, in business, in discipleship. Until you come to John 21. And in John 21, Peter is stuck. And he's stuck in despair. And he's in a mess. And he's made the mess himself. Let's read about it. John chapter 21, beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says, After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples on the Sea of Tiberias. That's the Sea of Galilee. And this is the way that he showed himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. And Simon Peter said unto them, I'm going fishing. Now, if you have a pen in your hand and you're a note taker, you should underline that statement. Peter says, I'm going fishing. It's important. We'll, we'll talk about why it's important in a minute. I'm going fishing, he says. They said to him, well, we'll go fishing with you. So they went forth, and they entered into a ship immediately, and that night... They caught nothing. Now, don't be surprised that they're fishing at night. That's the way you fish on the Sea of Galilee. In the time of Christ, you didn't fish with a hook and a line and a sinker. You fished with a net. You would cast the net. It would take in the fish, and then you would draw the fish in with the net. And you always fished at night because during the hot daytime, the fish go deep to the cooler waters. At night, they come to the surface or near the surface, and that's when you can catch them in the net. So they would fish at night. Well, they cast their nets all night and draw them all night. They catch nothing. Verse number four says, But when the morning was come, Jesus was standing on the shore. But the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. They're about 100 yards offshore in the midst of the morning. They, they see his figure, but they don't know who he is. Verse five, Jesus said unto them, Children, have you any meat? Now, what that means is, hey guys, did you catch anything? How's the fishing? Have you caught any fish? Look at their answer. Verse number uh, five, they answered him, no. Thanks for asking. Nothing. We fished all night. We've caught nothing. Verse six, he said to them, cast your net on the right side of the ship and You'll find some fish. So they cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw the net in. There were so many fish in it. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus 
loved. Stop right there. Do you know who that is? You got it. It's John. John wrote this gospel, and every time John refers to himself in his gospel, he calls himself that disciple whom Jesus loved. I love that. If I were writing my own gospel, that's what I would do. I was his pet, John says. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said unto Peter, it's the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he gathered his fisher's coat to him. The King James says, for he was naked. Now, he wasn't naked. He was wearing, the the Greek word is gymnos. He was wearing shorts, like what we would call gym shorts, uh, while he was working. So he gathers his clothes to him, and he jumps into the water, and he swims to shore. Verse 8 says, the other disciples come in a little ship. They weren't far from land, about 200 cubits or 100 yards, dragging the net of fishes. And as soon as they were come to the land, they saw a fire of coals and fish laid thereon and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring up the fish which you have now caught. And Simon Peter went up and drew the net, of land, uh, drew the net to the land full of great fishes, 153 fish. And even though there were so many, the net was not broken. And Jesus said unto them, come and dine. And none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew that it was the Lord. Then Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them and fish likewise. This now is the third time that Jesus had showed himself to his disciples after that he had been raised from the dead. Now, before we get into Peter's circumstance specifically, I want to direct your undivided attention to that last statement in verse number 14, which says this was the third time that Jesus had showed himself after that he had risen from the dead. After he had risen from the dead. Two things ought to be said about this. Number one is to say that Jesus had only recently died a violent and horrific and very public death. Hear me, church. The death of Jesus was not secret. It didn't happen in some back alley that not many people knew about. Jesus had been through the court system. He had been tried by the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin. He had been delivered to Pilate. He had been interrogated by Pilate. He had been punished and scourged by over a hundred, probably several hundred, maybe up to 600 soldiers that were involved in his punishment and his scourging. When he was crucified, he was nailed to the cross alongside a busy street. And it's not a stretch to say that there could have been thousands of people who walked past him as he hung on the cross. I'm simply saying to you, his death was not a secret. He had died. And everybody in Jerusalem knew that he had died. In fact, if you were here last Sunday, you'll remember that John chapter number 19 tells us in verse 30 about the death of Jesus. Turn back one page and look at it. John 19 verse 30 says, When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. That is, his spirit left him. His breath left him. And he died hanging on the cross. He expired. But it's interesting that verse number 30 of chapter 19 says that just before Jesus died, with his final strength, with his final bit of energy, he reached deep within 
and he, he breathed out this declaration, it is finished. Jesus died only after completing some great work. A, a work which he had come to do, a work which he had come to perform, which must be completed before he would die. And so just before he draws his last breath, he says, it's done. It is finished. Well, what is the work? I mean, what's that great work that had to be finished before he could die? Well, simply, it's the work of our redemption. It's the work of our salvation. It is his job, his work of taking my sin and your sin and carrying those sins to the cross and paying the debt to God for our sin that we owed and that we could never pay. In fact, let me read to you. Why don't you turn with me as well? John chapter 10, just a few pages backward. It's an amazing passage where Jesus describes his death before it happens. John chapter 10, verse 14. We call this the Good Shepherd Discourse. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 10 and verse 14. Jesus says, I am the Good Shepherd. And I know my sheep and I have known of mine. And as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. Stop right there. There's the job. There's the great work that he's going to do. He's saying that my death will not be about me. My death will not be meaningless or purposeless. My death will be for the rescuing of my sheep. I lay down my life for my sheep. Verse 17 Therefore does my father love me. He's pleased with me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. And before Jesus goes to the cross, he says this, I will lay down my life, but I will not remain dead. I will rise from the dead. And verse 18, no man takes it from me. I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down. Listen carefully. What Jesus says is that he has authority over his destiny. That his death will not be carried out with no control of his own and that only the Romans will bring about his execution. No, he says, I determine. I will determine when my life will end. I will determine how my life will end and I have power over my life and if I have power to determine when I lay it down, look at the end of verse number 18, then I have the power to take it up again because I am dying for a purpose on a timeline that I will set from my agenda then I will also have the power to take my life up. Again, this is what Jesus is saying when he says, from the cross, it is finished. This work of rescuing my sheep, this work of taking their sins and dying for them, it's finished. It's the work of taking the curse that's upon us for sin. In fact, listen to what the Bible says in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. It says that Christ has redeemed us. That's you and me. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. The law of God. The perfect law of God that details the perfect requirements of God for us to have righteousness and resulting eternal life. And we fail in our righteous endeavors. We fail to be perfect people. Therefore, the law of God, which is perfect, condemns us, cursing us to death. The wages of sin, the result of sin, what we've earned for our sin is the curse of death. So Paul says in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us 
from that death. He became a curse for us, the Bible says, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs upon a tree. When Jesus dies on the cross, he says, it is finished. What is finished? He has taken the curse fully. That's what was finished. In fact, one other passage, Isaiah 53, you don't have to turn, but Isaiah 53, seven centuries before Jesus was even born, 700 years before Christ was born, Isaiah says this so beautifully, speaking prophetically about what Christ will do in removing the curse from us and rescuing his sheep. Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Remember John 10, the Good Shepherd Discourse? I lay down my life for the sheep. What sheep? The sheep who have gone astray, Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. And we have turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sin and the curse of us all. Understand, this is the message of the gospel. This is what Easter is all about. It's what the church lives to proclaim. And it's what every single believer understands and has accepted. I am under the curse of sin because I am not perfect, but Christ was perfect. And he took my curse to the cross. And when he carried it, he said, it's finished. And he died so that my curse would be paid for. And then on his own promise from John chapter 10, he said, I will have the power to raise it up again. And on the third day, he rose from the dead to give us eternal life. That's the gospel. That's the simple Christian message. And so the point is that Jesus died this death under the guilt of our sin, not his own. But when you come to John 21, our text indicates that this previously dead Man, Jesus, this previously crucified person who had a spear through his chest cavity, who died with a crown of thorns on his head with spikes in his wrists and his ankles, who was nailed to a cross and breathed his last breath. He was dead. Do you understand? He was dead. The text indicates in John 21 that he's now standing on the shore of Galilee. I've never seen a dead man stand up. But Jesus died And then he stood. The Bible says in John chapter number 21 that he is standing on the shore of the Galilee in verse 4. Verse number 5 says not only is he standing, but he's speaking. Really not just speaking. He's shouting, have you caught any fish? I've never heard a dead man speak. But this dead man rose up and spoke. And then the Bible says in John 21 and verse number 12 that he's not only standing and speaking, but now he's sitting around a campfire having breakfast with his friends. I've never seen a dead man stand up. I've never heard a dead man speak. And I promise you, I've never seen a dead man have breakfast. But Jesus did. And loved ones, this changes everything, doesn't it? Because if Jesus is alive, if Christ truly has risen from the dead, then no one needs to remain stuck. No one is beyond hope. Listen, every life can be rescued. Every family can be transformed. Every person in bondage can be set free. Every addiction can be broken. And we can live forever because Christ has risen. This is the hope of the gospel. And that means I don't have to be stuck in my sin anymore. And it means that you don't have to be stuck in your sin anymore. And praise God for Peter. It meant that Peter didn't have to be stuck in his despair and his sin 
anymore. Let's just close by thinking about that despair of Peter. In fact, if you're a note taker, why don't you write this down? What this text reveals to us is that Peter is stuck and he's stuck in his own regret. Chapter number 21 and verse number three, I asked you to underline it earlier where Peter says, I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. Let me translate that for you. When he says, I'm going fishing, what he means is, I'm going back to fishing. Um, here's the other ways he could have said it. I quit. I quit. I give up. This disciple thing, this being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus, I can't do it. I tried. I thought I could. But I've messed up. I've blown it so terribly. I've sinned so grievously against Christ. I, I just better go back and do what I've done before I ever met Jesus. I'll just go fishing again. You say, what in the world has he done? I mean, how bad could it be? Well, you don't have to look far. If you turn back to John chapter number 18, you'll see it. In John 18 and verse number 17, on the night that Jesus is arrested, he's taken to the house of Caiaphas where he's going to undergo trial and Peter follows him at a distance. And verse number 17 says, as he comes in the door, there's a young damsel, a young girl who keeps the door. And she says to Peter, aren't you one of his disciples? They've just taken Jesus in in chains in this door. Now Peter's coming in behind him. And she says, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? And Peter's answer, no, 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 no. I don't know him. Hey, if y'all are listening, shout amen. Can we be honest? What a coward. I mean, seriously. What, what cowardice. In the moment that your Lord, the one that you've left your boats and your business and your nets to follow, who you've seen do the miracles, whom you've watched multiply the fish and raise the dead and heal the sick, and you know you've said is the Son of God. In the moment he needs you most, you're like, no. I don't know him. Well, if once wasn't enough, look at verse number 25. Verse 25 says, Simon Peter stood and warmed himself around the fire. There were others standing there that said to him, are are not you also one of his disciples? Again, he denied it. No, he said, I'm not. Verse number 27. Peter denied a third time. And immediately the rooster began to crow and the morning dawned. Three times in one night, Peter denied that he even knew the Lord. And he was filled with regret because of it. Now, here's what, here's what I know. Let me, let me speak very directly to all of us. I'm talking to people who, like Peter, are filled with regret. It's true. I know it's true. And I know it's true because all of us have sinned, and sin brings regret. We've all done wrong things, and we regret some of the decisions that we've made in the past, or maybe some decisions that we're even making right now. We sense guilt and shame and regret as a result of those. The the Bible says this is true of all of us. Did you know that Romans 3.10 says there's not a person who's excluded from this? There is no one that's righteous, non-righteous, the Bible says. No, not one. You say, not even my sweet grandmother? Not even her, okay. Nobody is righteous. Why? Because Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned. How many have sinned? Shout it. All. All have sinned. Now listen, the fact is you're sitting among sinners. You're listening to a sinner talk to you today. We have all sinned and we all have regrets. And I need to warn you because I wouldn't be 
being fair to you. I, I, I wouldn't be being truthful if I didn't warn you of this. That the sins that you regret and the, that shame and guilt that you carry, if you don't come to faith in Christ, one day, even the things that are secret and only you regret because only you know about them, God knows and one day you will be judged for those things. Revelation chapter 20 says it as plain as day. John says in Revelation 20, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and the dead were judged out of the books according to the things that they had done, which were written in the books. You say, there's books in heaven? There's books. There's record books. And God knows. And one day we will be judged for those sins if we reject Christ. Remember, the good news is that Christ took our guilt, right? Christ took our regret. Christ took our shame. He did this work of carrying our guilt to the cross, and he paid for it. So we don't have to. And we don't have to be judged for it because we can be forgiven of it. So Peter was, was stuck in his regret. Maybe you feel stuck in some regret today as well. Now, the last thing I want you to see in this passage before we go home and celebrate Easter is that is that there's something about Jesus that is so beautiful in this passage, and it has to do with his grace. Write it down this way, that Jesus is so persistent in his gracious pursuit of Peter. I mean, he is relentless in pursuing Peter. I mentioned to you that Peter was filled with regret. He was stuck in this regret. Matthew and Luke both tell us that when Peter denied Jesus that third time and the rooster crowed, Matthew and Luke both say these words. Peter went out and wept bitterly, filled with shame and, and guilt. Now that's Friday morning. Six o'clock in the morning, Friday morning, he starts to weep. And he must have wept all day long. He must have cried throughout the day, feeling such guilt and shame. He knew that Jesus was being crucified. He was in, likely in a place where he could see the cross. He was watching Jesus suffer and die, and surely the guilt was overwhelming. I should be with him. I'm such a coward. I've run. I've left my Lord alone. He weeps through the day. Jesus dies, and they bury him, and he weeps through the night. Saturday comes. He weeps all day Saturday, so guilty, so, so overwhelmed with, with shame all through Saturday. And when Sunday morning dawned, it only dawn, the sun only rose to shine greater light on the guilt and the regret of Peter. But what you need to know is that all of that's from Peter's perspective. But from Christ's perspective, he comes forth from the grave to pursue Peter. The last thing Jesus heard Peter say, are you listening, was, I don't know him. And then he died. And the day that he comes out of the grave, the moment he comes out of the grave, he comes out of the grave to go and rescue Peter. It's a beautiful thing. The Bible tells us that when Jesus comes out of the grave, early in the morning, he's met by a group of women. And he says to those women, go tell my disciples, are you listening? And Peter. Because I'm thinking maybe when he said, go tell my disciples that I've risen from the dead, the women are probably going, well, you don't want us to tell Peter, do you? Because you know what Peter did. <laughs> I mean, maybe Jesus read their mind. He says, no, you go tell all my disciples, including Peter, that I have risen from the dead and I'm going to go before them in Galilee. He got out of his grave 
Are you listening? Jesus rose from the dead thinking about the guy who had failed him so miserably. The Bible tells us in one of the other gospels that Jesus, on that very day that he rose from the dead, he met with Peter alone, just the two of them. He appeared to Peter. We know nothing else about it. All we know is it happened. We don't know where it happened. We don't know when it, what time of the day it happened. We don't know what the conversation was. Oh, how I would love to have been a fly on the wall at that conversation. I don't know what happened, what what was said, but they met together. But whatever happened, it was not enough to assuage the guilt that Peter was feeling. So he goes back to Galilee. He gets back on the boat. He says, I quit, and I go back to be a fisherman. (laughs) Now, he goes back to be a fisherman because that's what he knows how to do, right? That's what he's good at. So he gets on the boat and he fishes all night and guess what he catches? Nothing. He's thinking, I can't, not only am I not a good disciple, I'm a terrible fisherman now. You can't be any lower than Peter was at that moment. And the last person as he's just sitting there, all is lost on that boat. The last person he expects to encounter is Jesus. And the sun rises and guess who's on the shore? Jesus. Can I tell you, this is who Jesus is. It's what he does. He is persistent. He is relentless in his grace pursuits. He gathers them to the shore, come to the shore. He gives them, there's a coal of fire with some fish and bread. Look at John chapter 21, verse number 13. It says that Jesus took bread and he served it to Peter. I've told you this before. You remember it's only been 10, 12 days since he was crucified when he serves the bread, do you know what's visible? It's not a scar. It's still a gaping wound where the nails were in his hands. He serves that to Peter. He says to Peter, do you love me three times? Do you love me? Yeah, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you love me, Lord? Do you know all things? you know that I love you? Was he berating Peter? No. He was giving him the opportunity to reaffirm and restore and reaffirm his love. And then this beautiful thing happens in verse number 19. Chapter 21, verse 19. That after breakfast, it appears that Peter and Jesus take a walk. And as they're walking along those stones on the shore of Galilee, the end of verse number 19, if you have a red letter edition of your Bible, you'll see it in red. Jesus says two words. Do you see them? Follow me. I love this. I love it because those are the exact same words that Jesus has said to Peter three and a half years earlier when he called him to be his disciple. Follow me. And Peter had, but he had messed up. And Jesus comes back and says, follow me again. And follow me until the day that you die. (laughs) And loved ones, Peter did. He followed Jesus until his last day. In fact, tradition tells us that Peter died a martyr's death, crucified upside down because he refused to be crucified in the same way as his Lord was. So they turned his cross upside down and crucified him that way. And Peter's life was transformed after this moment of despair. If you were to go forward in your Bible two pages to Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, there are tens of thousands of people in Jerusalem at the temple, and a man stands up in the face of tens of thousands of people. If y'all are listening, shout amen. In front of tens of thousands of people, and here's what he says, Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead. You know who said those words? The same guy who was afraid of a young damsel and said, no, I don't know him, to a servant girl. 
stands up in the face of thousands and proclaims the resurrection. Because Jesus transforms lives. And if we could talk to Peter, he would say, here's my story. I was stuck in my sin and my despair and my regret. But Jesus came to me and he forgave me and he gave my life purpose and meaning. And that can be your story as well. It's my story. It's Peter's story. And it can be your story.